0: Welcome to the London Politica podcast. This is where we join industry thought leaders and experts to uncover the nexus of politics, markets, and society. My name is Manas Travel and I'm thrilled today to be joined by leading political risk analyst and commentator. He's run one of the the world's most successful political risk consultancies called John C. Halsman Enterprises. He's a life member of the Council on Foreign Relations, advised literally thousands of top executives uh, at companies, at governments, even heads of state. Uh, in addition to the over 1,500 interviews he's done in two decades, he regularly writes for City AM, Arab News, The Hill, ORF. Joining me from Milan, Dr. John Hulsman. It is so wonderful to have you on the show.
1: Well, Mattis, it's great to be here, but when you read that introduction, you make me feel very tired.
0: <laughs> no, that's lovely. Well, so, I mean, while preparing for this sort of interview, you know, I went on your website and I found your 37-page CV and... and Kind of getting through it, I was just amazed by, by the sheer expanse of, of you know, the top-ranking officials that you've briefed. It included Margaret Thatcher, Dominic Cummings, George Osborne, uh, executives of the CIA, the National Security Council, all sorts of things. I mean, I could keep going on for hours, but I've got to ask you, in these thousands of briefings, is there one that kind of really stood out to you, one that was really memorable?
1: I think the Thatcher one is the most memorable. I mean, the comment Meemeran Miner, made about her, and, and you know, take a former French president to say this, she was a you know, unprepossessing looking woman, except her eyes, which were the most beautiful he'd ever seen. But as you said, they are the eyes of a jungle cat, pitiless, without mercy, and full of logic. And to meet her, and she had been out of office, and I was working on some free trade issues, a global free trade association was an idea of mine. And so doing this. We saw, we saw Lady Thatcher and she was pouring tea and I was nervous and went to pour the tea and she slapped my hand and said, you're an American, let me make the tea. And uh, and then I then I relaxed and we spent three hours talking about policy. There was no one else in the room. Uh, usually, when I meet senators or congressmen or CIA leaders, you meet them, say hello, and then you talk to their their representatives. There are about a hundred other people in the room, and they're the ones you really want to talk to. They're the experts. But in this case, she came to the room with one other person to take notes, and she and I spoke one on one for three hours, and it was one of the greatest experiences of my life. I mean, to be mentioned in the acknowledgement page of her last book was one of three times I called my father to say maybe that education wasn't wasted. But her grasp of of the intricacies of policy was extraordinary, extraordinary.
0: Yeah, and in some of your other experience, I mean, we've spoken to sort of civil servants on the past on this podcast, all sorts of people. I mean, one thing I often hear, Uh, from people advising top leaders is, you know, a lot of the time you're preparing these reports, doing these extensive briefings, but it can often be a bit disheartening to find out, you know, if they're not implemented or if you don't actually see that taking place. Did you ever find that in your experience? Yes, in the old days, I mean I before I went off on my own, I've had my own
1: business now for fifteen years, which was the best single thing that that I did it It came out of the emergency of I was against the Iraq war, and I decided to resign on principle over the Iraq war for good political risk reasons. I didn't think the war would work. Uh, I remember saying at the time, uh, which turned out to be exactly right uh, at the time though George Bush had a ninety percent approval rating. let's remember that it didn't look very good for my career prospects, and I said. I think that we're going to, you know, go to war. I think it's going to happen. I think we will win militarily. We will lose the peace. We will radicalize the Sunni hinterlands of the country, and God knows what we get then, well, we got ISIS. Uh, we, will, we will stay forever. We will spend a trillion dollars, and we will make Iran the dominant power in the Gulf. Right, 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 right. And yet, like Cassandra, I knew being right didn't matter. I knew that was all going to happen anyway. And so it became a moral question. Was I going to sit and, and, again, tilt at windmills? Or was I going to go my own way and say, no, this is wrong, and we can do better? And if other people are going to be brave, to quote Jefferson, I have to pledge my life, my fortune, and my sacred honor. And so I left and came to Europe, where I worked at various think tanks and had a lot of free time, because think tanks in Europe are not as policy-driven as they are in America. In America, you can actually enact policy as an advisor. In Europe, it's much more academic. And so by my standards, I had a lot of free time, and I started my business doing that, which took off then. And it's infinitely better to be your own boss than to work for for that. For that reason that you mentioned, Manas, the problem is you can be right, you can you can make good arguments, and if you talk to people who simply don't care and are going to do what they're going to do anyway, it becomes immensely frustrating, immensely Frustrated. Mm. Whereas if you run a political risk company, the reason you're hired is your honesty. It's exactly the opposite. They want a business or a government, wants a disinterested view. I don't know the bureaucratic politics of the businesses that hire me, but I can give them honest advice that then they can use in their bureaucratic politics to do things. I don't want to know the bureaucratic politics of those businesses. What they want is an honest, independent evaluation of how the world works. And at that, we're pretty peerless.
0: No, that's really cool, and and I mean, in this kind of long career that you've had, you've also written a ton. I know you you, you know you finished your last was it the, was it the one thousandth article last week or a couple of weeks. I ago? did
1: exactly. We had a big party. I mean,
0: that's wonderful. I mean, I you know I want to talk about a couple of your recent publications, in you know especially the ones where you talk about sort of the geopolitical context of the pandemic. Uh, because last week we saw like quite the dramatic turnaround from the White House uh, in what they thought was the origin of the coronavirus. You know, parts of the U.S. intelligence community are now entertaining the theory that it. Yeah, we got well that one, been, right too. I, I want to say yeah.
1: shamelessly, a year ago we said, 14 yeah. months ago we said we think it more likely, and I and I give my partner, my Italian partner, credit. She was frantically cooking something and said something to the effect of there's this Institute of Virology next door as opposed to bats a thousand miles away, which is more likely. Should we not entertain this possibility? And I wrote Mm. a piece of capex, the great British publication saying, I think that this will be seen to come out of a lab accident, not some James Bond story. Again, Mm. my, my experience historically in Washington and elsewhere is Shakespearean. The world though is not run by Hamlet. It's run by Macbeth. It's not some evil guy's, pulling strings in an Oliver Stone movie, it's well-meaning, arrogant guys making mistakes. It's Hamlet. And it seemed to me that what she said made sense with what I was seeing, which is that it's far more likely that, it, like the great TV show Chernobyl, that this has been covered up all the way up the ladder. The guy who got bitten doesn't want to tell the lab owner because he'll lose his job. The lab owner doesn't want to tell the head of Hubei province because he'll lose his job. The head of Hubei province doesn't want to tell Xi Jinping because he'll lose his his job or worse. And and as a result, everything is slowed, everything is obfuscated, everything is based on a lie. And in this period of time, of course, the virus explodes. But then the the one bit of thing I, I wrote that I was sure of, the wickedness, where I watched a lot of Law and Order and the manslaughter. I think of Jack McCoy going for the manslaughter conspiracy charge. Once they knew in January or earlier, and it will be earlier, once they knew this was going on, they did nothing to stop it because they said to themselves, the Chinese Communist Party, if we're gonna take a hit, the rest of the world is gonna take a hit too. And that's the wickedness, that's the manslaughter. And my example would be flight manifests. They locked down Hubei province and for weeks afterwards, left airlines open to fly to the rest of the world. This, these are facts. And if you're locking down the province, you know something's wrong. Mm. At the same hand, if you're leaving open international travel, inevitably the pandemic is going to spread. And that, to me, more importantly than where it came from or the manufacturing, that to me is a sign that the Chinese Communist Party is not a responsible stakeholder. But as you say, it's taken the rest of the world 15 months to catch up to this, partly because Donald Trump made this assertion and the mainstream media hate Donald Trump, so lazily assume, and this is terrible political risk, is the person, because I don't like him, necessarily wrong? Because I don't like someone, they're wrong. Everything they say is wrong. This is ridiculously lazy commentary and elite thinking. That is absolutely why you should hire the likes of me. Follow the argument, not the man. Mm. Is the argument valid? I'm no fan of Donald Trump's either. I think he trampled on constitutional norms, and for good Jeffersonian reasons, he is not my sort of guy, as I've made very clear, as a Republican for years, but that does not mean on this specific issue he is necessarily wrong because you don't like him. Once emotion gets involved in this, from the New York Times to the Washington Post to diplomats all over Europe, you have a problem and you're being lazy. Follow arguments, not men,
0: and you'll do much better. Mm. And the worst thing about it for me was, I mean, obviously it was the media, it was the diplomatic community, but it was also social media, right? Like Facebook was outright banning every post that, uh, you know, mentioned the theory that this came from a lab leak. Uh, they only changed that policy a couple of weeks ago, which kind of yeah. means anyone sort of entertaining an alternative possibility, which now seems to be entirely plausible, was then just labeled as like, you know, right-wing conspiracy Not, I mean... Yeah. I mean, I mean, you're right. The, the inter, I mean, high tech has a tremendous amount to answer for. I'm sick of them
1: hiding behind the notion that there's some sort of community board while they're making editorial decisions. And you're just labeling. These are editorial decisions. They are censoring alternate points of view because they don't like the political slant of their newspaper. The reason mm. I say that is if they're a newspaper, they get to be regulated by Congress. They're trying to have it both ways and say, oh, no, 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 we don't do any of that. We're just a community board, so you don't get to regulate us. Utter nonsense and the, and the COVID, I think this is the tipping of of the scales here. I think from now on, we all know they are because they got this entirely wrong based on ideological reasons that have to do with editorial control. There's nothing wrong with having editorial control, but you have to be honest about it. You have to say, look, I read the Guardian. I know it's a left-wing newspaper. I read it every day. I read the Times of London. It's a right-wing newspaper. I read it every day. The FT is an established newspaper that's wrong about literally everything. Uh, from Brexit to Trump to Afghanistan to Iraq. Their record is, I wouldn't hire them to be my intern. Um, But they have an editorial line, and that's fine. High tech, big tech, wanted both ways. And and I think that this COVID catastrophe, analytically, has got to open eyes that indeed they do have an editorial role, which is fine, but then they get to be regulated by the U.S. Congress and by the European Union.
0: Full stop. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like, there's one thing you wrote in, I think it was either your earlier publication or the one you published a couple of weeks ago, but you said, you know, if the CCP was a person, it would be guilty of manslaughter or something along those lines. I mean, exactly what say, I said. You know, that, that's, let, let, let's say that's true. And, and you know, we've, if for whatever reason, the intelligence communities come out and Biden comes out and they say, you know, this was a lab leak uh, from Wuhan and, and the virology lab there and we can prove it. Let's say that happens. I mean, what are the geopolitical implications of that? Uh, and, and I mean, what's the international community's punishment then for manslaughter?
1: Well, and and you're right. That's how you think as a political risk analyst, Mon, exactly as you say. And again, I, I encourage people to read the two pieces, the CapEx one and then the city AM one, because they lay out the circumstantial case and that's probably all we're ever going to have by now, as I wrote in one of the pieces, an unnamed American diplomat said clearly, you know, by now they've buried the person or the information precisely. So we never do know. What happens? I mean, that's the ultimate sign. If you're so innocent and think of it from their point of view, if guys like me are accusing you of manslaughter and you're actually innocent of these charges, you'd be rushing data out in every possible location to say, no, this is what happened. Here's the data by which we do it. You'd be transparent for your own selfish interests. They're not doing that. They're doing the reverse. They sent the curiously incurious WHO, the butt of every analytical joke in the world, and they send them off to China. They don't give them the lab records. They don't give them the safety records. They don't give them the data. It's exactly the opposite of what an innocent person would do. An innocent person would want to proclaim their innocence on this fundamental question of the new century. And instead, they don't. And that's one of the great bits of circumstantial evidence showing they're more likely than not, as a jury trial would get, that you're guilty. And by the way, you can be convicted of manslaughter for all of you who watch Law and Order based on circumstantial evidence. There is nothing (laughs) wrong with that. Um, What happens? Well, the first thing that happens is the arguments in all of our kind of Western polities begin to change and in Asia as well. And the argument that's been increasingly going the way of the United States, and in Asia, the United States is in great position. Not because the United States is so geostrategically clever. Far from it. I have Bismarck's view of America. They asked Bismarck, "Why does America do so well?" And Bismarck said, oh, "You know, I really don't know. God protects drunks, children, in the United States of America. That America is lucky. We're lucky, and our enemies, our enemies overreach, and Xi Jinping has overreached." with the COVID issue and covering it up, with what happened in India in the high Himalaya, with what he does bullying people in the South China Sea and the East China Sea and Hong Kong and Xinjiang province. There is a long list now of examples where he has diverted himself from Deng Xiaoping's softly, softly approach. And Deng Xiaoping, a a, a great realist in my book, he's definitely one of the heroes, Deng Xiaoping, who says, look, there's nothing that China can't solve that 8% growth a year won't take care of. And if we quietly enter the international scene in 30 years growing at 8% while the Americans grow in two and the Europeans grow in zero, we we'll, we'll, we'll revisit all these issues again from a position of strength. That's how a realist would look at this. That's what you do. You are quiet, you are quiescent, and you build up your strength over time, and then you revisit all these issues. But Deng Xiaoping, as a true radical, tries to hurry history along in true Robespierreist fashion. And in hurrying history along, he makes a terrible mistake. He actually scares the horses. And so now the United States is closer to Australia than it's ever been, closer to Japan than it's ever been, certainly closer to India than than it's ever been, closer to Australia than it's ever been, closer to Vietnam for goodness sake, I've lived to see Vietnamese generals hug a terrified American Secretary of Defense, Bob Gates, because they would rather have a friend far away who doesn't really care how things are run than a bully next door. That's good geopolitics. So the COVID issue will not be that they are punished in any material way. They are too strong in that sense to be public, punished. But what will happen is that the perception, the argument, is China a responsible stakeholder in the new era? That argument is definitively won by those who say, no, it's not. And we have to balance against them in realist fashion through the Quad, through CPTPP, through geoeconomics and geopolitics to balance against their rise as, as, a, as a revolutionary power. And, the, and case one will be what they did in COVID. And so it will matter fundamentally because the argument that, you know, China has, you know, bought and sold academics, this has dealt with the media, that will simply go out the window. It will be untenable to say, Mm -hmm. oh, they're just not understood very well, they mean well. After you get the rest of the world sick, that goes away.
0: Yeah, and and, like just within Washington, you see this massive polarization between Republicans and Democrats, but like really the only thing they can kind of agree on is U.S. China and being hawkish on China, okay. and and, and I, the biggest change for me leaving in 2006, everyone was a
1: dove of one mm. kind or another. George W. Bush led him in WTO, Clinton, Obama, totally naive about this, the sainted Obama, wrong again. Um, no, it's wonderfully wore a suit well and could speak in rounded paragraphs, but that doesn't mean he was right. Again, I, I like him too to look at. It doesn't mean analytically he was right. He wasn't about China at all. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so now everyone, when I go back to Washington, I'd see my friends, everyone is a hawk. It's the one thing in the most poisonous atmosphere imaginable that they agree on. If anything, Chuck Schumer is to the right of the trump people he's been anti-chinese for trade reasons and human rights reasons long before the republican party so he's saying welcome to the party and so we, we we now have the democrats outdoing each other in hawkishness and you see biden Constantly moving rightwards from his quiescent, appeasing days of under Obama to now keeping a very Mm. tough line with China. And it's the one point of bipartisan agreement in the United States is is coalescing. And if you don't think this COVID story has legs, I mean, this is the biggest geostrategic story of the year because it proves definitively China is not a responsible stakeholder. And if that's true, you have to act in a certain geostrategic way, you have to balance against them. And that's what's happening.
0: Yeah. Do you think Biden has an interest to maybe not come out with it, even if it's true? Because, you know, if he confirms that it's true, he has all this pressure on him to, you know, maybe there's going to be people in the community saying, you got to impose sanctions now. Maybe there's people saying, you know, you got to stop trade with China now, or, you know, you, you've you know, got to launch a, a World Health Organization in Korea into it or whatever, which, you know, obviously wouldn't work anyway. Um, but no. <laughs> do you think if, if, if this was even proven true to Biden, um, he would have sort of the impetus to take action against China.
1: Well, no. And, and the way intelligence organizations work is they don't talk about things being true or untrue in a newspaper kind of way. They talk about probabilities Mm. and the probability, this will never be determined, determined definitively because enough time has gone by. They've had a year and a half to cover this up. And so will there be a determinative moment? No. Much as I wrote in the City AM piece, what you can do is add up all the circumstantial evidence and as a reasonable, rational thinking person, come to the conclusion that more likely than not, the Chinese were involved. And they use fake numbers because, again, political science guys like this. I'm a historian by trading and roll my eyes. There's a fake rigor to the numbers and they use them. But they'll say something to the effect of the president. Mr. President, after looking at all this, we think there's a 75 percent chance that the Chinese did that. And I would say better far better average than not, there's a chance, but it means the same thing. It it cannot be definitively proven, and that will be a fig leaf Biden can hide behind. But on the other hand, the broader perception of China already plummeting. If you look at the Pew research numbers, American opinions of China have fallen off the table in the last two years by 23 points in two years, and that will continue to go down. Now you're making the argument that also works in Europe. Europeans are going to have a very hard time continuing along their merry way, Um, With this happening, and in Asia, it's a slam dunk argument for Mm. whatever one fears. Anyway, look again, as a a great piece of news. The Australians, the poor Australians, call for a high-minded international commission last year just to say, let's look at the origins of the virus. The Chinese shriek. No, you can't do that. How dare you offend us? And then they lay sanctions on the Australians for having the effrontery to merely ask, what happens Um, if there is a commission into the origins of the virus. We all know what happens. China covered this up. China made mistakes. China let the rest of the world get sick. And they don't want that to happen. So there'll be enough of a fig leaf that nothing specific will need to be done, but perception will damn Mm. the Chinese. And that big argument, that big strategic
0: argument, will be settled in favor of, no, China's not a responsible power. No, I agree with all of that. But but what's really worrying for me is, I mean, the extension of that theory is, you know, this is a lab leak, but it could be an intentional lab leak. Or, you know, like you said, uh, the, the fact that they had flights open, but, you know, local transport closed. I mean, there was some nefarious, malicious element to this, right? Yeah. And I feel like the circumstantial mm-hmm. evidence around that might be at least a little bit harder to prove than, than sort of the more docile, you know, this was just a, an, an innocent lab leak. I mean- well, you know, It you know, is nefarious
1: has- to me. It, it's, again, it, it's, it's manslaughter. It, it's, it's willful neglect. It's willful disregard of safety. That's what mm-hmm. manslaughter means. And, and that's exactly what happened. I don't think they planned this. I don't think it was Dr. No that they specter sat around in a dark room and said, how can we you know, steal a nuclear missile from James Bond? I mean, I don't think that's what happened. But once mistakes were made, they were allowed to continue to the outside world because they were going to take a terrible hit, as they did. But the rest of the world was also going to take a terrible hit because the last thing Xi Jinping wanted was a virus c- constrained only to China where they took the hit and the rest of the world did not, that doesn't suit the Chinese Communist Party in any way. And what's wicked, what's nefarious, is knowing that, knowing an accident happened, knowing mistakes were made, and then not limiting the damage. That's just not how the rest of us work. We wouldn't do that. There are certain ethical precepts that you don't let the rest of the world get sick because the United States or Britain or Italy Mm. would happen to do that. And they're breaking that basic code of how the world works. And that's what I mean in detail about being a responsible stakeholder. And that will be held against them. No amount of wolf warrior diplomacy changes that. No amount of nothing. I can say this for the next 30 years. You lose to plague upon the world in Old Testament fashion. So shut up. Um, And I can say that for the next 30 years. And this this will not be forgotten by the rest of the world, no. And that is nefarious, and it is manslaughter, and it is wicked, no doubt about it. Is it bioterrorism? I don't know if it fully, I mean, it depends on definitions here. I'm very happy with manslaughter, though. Reckless disregard of safety. Yeah, that's what this is. If it were a person, I see Jack McCoy saying, take him to trial, Mm -hmm. go arrest them. Um, It's a circumstantial case. It's not entirely easy to prove. But the easiest part is the nefarious part, actually. We know they locked down Hubei. We know they locked down Wuhan. We know they left open the airports to the rest of the world. That's provable. That's provable. And it seems to me that that on its own is enough to say, you did not behave like grown-ups here or decent human beings.
0: Right, right. And and sort of changing gears a little bit, I mean, you were also on Times Now, uh, an Indian news channel, uh, which, you know, I, I found the introduction really interesting because they go about sort of introducing your entire piece, but then they're like, uh, you know, Dr. Housman, he's, uh, you know, lots of people, he's been met with a lot of criticism because he doesn't have, too many Twitter followers, <laughs> and like you said, I mean, it's a sign of the times, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's the Kardashians. By this logic, Kim Kardashian should be running our foreign policy. Yeah, I got on Twitter like two months ago. I mean, at the at the knife-like urging of all around me that i had to do this i've used linkedin to meet you and to talk to people and we we have the firm a vigorous and huge linkedin performance i put every piece i write religiously online as advertisement uh, for linkedin it's just part of what i do with my day Uh, and so you know we have a, a vigorous and vibrant social media thing i find twitter you know, I don't need hysterics telling me Lee Harvey Oswald mm. didn't act alone every day. Um, and I, I read Twitter. I, you know, I, I look once a day. I make myself, you know, read the top 10 Twitter lines. But the idea that the, the only charge against my view of India was I didn't have as many Twitter followers as Kim Kardashian. As of two months ago, I had none. Uh, and uh, I didn't want any. Uh, you know the idea that you can actually want to have a private life is somehow seen as against you and revolutionary. As you say, it's a sign of the times. And again, by this logic, Kanye and Kim should be making our our foreign policy. I I, I realize there I have to make concessions to living in the twenty first century, and I do that by LinkedIn, which I love. I love working with that. It's easy and simple. I, I've done again sixteen hundred interviews, as you say. Now um, I've been out there. I think in terms of my writing and my speaking as much as any political risk executive probably in the world. Um, but it was interesting that the only slam they had about me was this Twitter thing. And I was, I was a little shocked that that people were were saying this, but as you say, it's a sign of the times that we live in. And I've been dragged kicking and screaming into Twitter, which Mm. I've now actually put pieces online for, but frankly, I'm, I'm more a quill pen sort of guy and I'll make the compromise to do the interviews and do LinkedIn. But again, Mm. Unlike Kim and Kanye, I mean, I I have a radical Jeffersonian view. It should be the quality of the work. And boy, we're out there in every way we possibly can from interviews and writing, and we will continue to be. But I found that a very interesting moment. It's interesting you bring that up, because I too, Mm -hmm. Afterwards, I said, yeah, she agreed with all my kind of demographic points, but the thing that she didn't like was that the center-left commentary didn't agree with me. So what? Again, wrong about Trump, wrong about Brexit, wrong about Afghanistan, wrong about Iraq. If they're wrong about everything, shouldn't we follow that? I don't Mm -hmm. care what they all think if they're all wrong. And then secondly— Um, you don't, you know, they all disagree with you. Doesn't that bother you? No. And you don't have as many Twitter followers as Kim Kardashian. Don't you think that kind of denigrates you? And I, and I, I think I said, I don't need to really run my CV by you, but, uh, you know, if if this is a sign of the times that you think that somehow a, a judge of merit, God help us all.
0: Yeah. And, and I mean, I think in a way, if I were you, I'd just take it as a compliment because I mean, really, if that's the worst thing they can lay against you, it's really not that bad.
1: <laughs> and that's and um. that's a, That's what I said afterwards to friends. I said, look, the only the only point she raised was that was that a highly discredited commentary that doesn't agree with me and that I don't have as many Twitter followers as Kim Kardashian, which I, I suppose that's true, I guess. Yeah.
0: No, fair enough, and 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 you know in that interview, it was about your piece about India. You're basically kind of arguing that uh, India is going to continue to grow, continue to be a rising power. uh, you know maybe superpower status. Mm-hmm. It's going to continue to grow despite COVID. And I mean, like you pointed out, the IMF's given India numbers like eleven point five percent of growth, and and you know as it rebounds from COVID. Um, what what are, what are the biggest reasons for you behind India's growth?
1: And, and Manas, this is a key point. And, and, and she did let me talk, which I liked. It. It's not always true And I've done, of the 1,600 interviews, many of them, they don't let you finish the sentence. And, and they you have to throw chairs. Especially
0: but, in India, yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. The guy on before me was shrieking. And I thought, mother of God, what have I got myself into? And then she was very good about letting me have a chance to, to argue my, my case. But... What political risk analysis is about is looking at what's enduring as opposed to what's the immediate media. This is a constant tension, mm. and you can get caught up in the smoke of what goes on. And in this case, the tragedy that's going on in India, which is heartbreaking and horrible, and of course it's been mismanaged by the Modi government, and there's no doubt about that. And they, they mismanaged demonetization, yes. They mismanaged lots of things, yes. But what's enduring in India, is why India is going to be a great power, if not a superpower, by 2050. It's already a great power, I'd argue, um, and is the most important rising power in the world. And three basic reasons one, political stability. Just because the commentary don't like him, again, not liking mm. Modi for a variety of reasons, he's a right wing populist. So, them as left wing Wilsonians don't like a right wing populist. I'm shocked. Of course, they don't like him. It shouldn't matter in looking at that, this guy, despite all Predictions, except for ours, again, we got this right, that Modi would gain seats in parliament in 2019. We said mm. this. We, everyone else said, no, 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 he'll win but lose seats. It's because that's what they wanted, not because of what they thought. It's what they want. They confuse what they want with analysis. Again, I didn't want the Iraq war, but I knew it was going to happen. I didn't want the United States to fail, but I knew that was going to happen. I can separate my emotional needs from my analysis. These people can't. And that's why most people mm. are very poor analysts in the commentary. are emotional. They'd hate to be considered this, but if you say or do something like Brexit that does not confirm their theory of the world, they can't get over it because it's so fixed, so emotional, so settled. They don't like Modi, so that means Indians can't like Modi which means he won't get seats. And of course that didn't happen, he gained seats. He is infinitely ahead of the Congress party, which is totally divided. Poor Rahul Gandhi wishes he were running an NGO, wishes he were doing anything but being leader of the Congress party. He doesn't wanna be leader, it's obvious. Palpably obvious when you talk to him, when you hear him speak, he doesn't want to be there. He's there because his mom is making him continue the family dynasty. And I get it. I get the soap opera aspects of this, but he obviously doesn't want to be there. And watching him and Modi together, one has wanted to be there his whole life. The other one doesn't want to be there. It's like watching a lion and a gazelle on the Serengeti. At some point, the lion's going to eat the gazelle. I don't really care when. And that's the result. So we have Mm. stability that Modi has an overwhelming majority. Whatever people think about his actual practice of policy, where I have many criticisms, he has an overwhelming majority. Many developing countries don't have that political stability that India does, one. Two, the demography. Demography is destiny. Half of Indians are 25, 60% are 35 or under, India is the only great power in the world that has catch-up growth, meaning if they are moderately competent, moderately more pro-business, relatively stable, the catch-up growth will have them grow at 6 to 8% for the next 20 years. Nobody else can look forward to the catch-up growth. China is getting old before it gets rich. Japan is elderly, Europe is sclerotic, even America is tapering out. The only great power with catch-up growth demographically in the world is India, which is what every one of my investors, what every one of my clients should care about. If it's moderately well-run, if it avoids a war, if it avoids administrative collapse, it will grow at six. If it's better run, it'll grow at eight, nine, ten. And that means that India is about to take off. And it's the mm. only country in the world with this demography. And then you mentioned the IMF numbers coming out of the crash are 11.5%. She said, well, these numbers come out you know, before before the full effects of the second wave of COVID. OK, knock the number down to eight or nine. It still dwarfs everybody else's number. So yep. India is going to have a boomerang effect coming out. When you add together the political stability, the demography, and, and, and the macroeconomics, which are the enduring things, Going on here. The only conclusion, the only conclusion is that India is on an upwards trajectory to great power, if not superpower status, which I think is a wonderful story that's untold. A wonderful story, because that means in this anti Chinese coalition, you now have heft Japan, huge economy, industrial advanced economy, Australia, Anglosphere first world economy, the United States, and now a rising India. If you ask me to pick that alliance or China, friendless China, I'll take, I'll take the quad any day, but India is the key strategic plan. Mm for everybody else. And this all goes together as the best story nobody's talking about. We're in risk. We're always talking negatively about avoid this catastrophe, avoid that catastrophe. We're less good about talking about positives. And India is the greatest positive story in the world. And you saw there was a, a tremendous response to the piece. Much of it shocked that I had anything good to say uh, about India. And then secondarily, my, my Twitter kind of, I'm not up to Kanye's standard on Twitter. Um, and, and, and these were kind of the two things which I found fascinating that I struck such a nerve by what to me is common sense
0: i mean this is this is the
1: easy piece to write not every piece is so simple as to make the case for india which which i've been making for years now
0: yeah i mean i definitely agree with your sort of conclusion in your last two points but there's there's something about sort of your first point i also kind of wanted to challenge a little bit which is you know we have this political stability because you know 80 percent of india uh, is a, is a Hindu country and, and, you know, Modi's Hindu nationalism or Hindu chauvinism, whatever you call it, is yep. going to be an enduring factor to retain the domestic legitimacy. But, you know, wouldn't you, and, and you know, like you said, sort of the opposition, the Congress is in shambles, but wouldn't you rather have a more competent opposition that would then lead to, you know, policies in a fairer government that, because all these reasons you lay out right now are kind of inherent deep-rooted, you know, structural drivers, none of them were, you know, Modi's policies. So yep. if we had, you know, a particularly maybe less stable and more competent opposition, um, wouldn't that produce better policies? Should we have that trade-off?
1: Ultimately, yes. Uh, The stability will still be there. And as I said in the interview, you're getting to the key here. These are structural points. Modi's lucky. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, as Napoleon said, I hope my generals are good. I think I said, but they must be lucky. Modi is lucky. Reagan was lucky. Let's not underestimate the value of luck in the world. It's very important. Modi inherited these structural drivers. He inherited a relatively stable political system, a demographic takeoff and good macroeconomic numbers. He's done nothing to screw them up despite the wishes, despite the mistakes, the enduring drivers have not been affected fundamentally by Modi being in government. They wouldn't be affected by Congress being in government if Gandhi were running it, actually, either. And so, yes, in a long-term Jeffersonian way, I always would like there to be a better opposition, much as in Britain, it would be nice if the Labour Party could ever get its act together to keep the Tory party honest. What mm. you want is a vibrant opposition that that makes the governing party do better. I mean, this is the basis to factionalism, as as Jefferson and, and Hamilton called it, or a party system, as we would call it. Um, and it is better if you have an opposition that's actually not on the floor, keeping them honest moving forward. But ultimately, I have no—where where there is the political stability is even if Congress were to get itself together— pull itself together and begin to chip away at at Modi's lead, it wouldn't change these enduring drivers at all. And so I'm confident whoever runs India in the next 20 years will will, will not chip away at these. And that's what I mean by political stability. In a way, I'm not confident, say, in France, if Le Pen beats Macron and he's within four points, um, that would change France. That would change the trajectory of France. There is not stability in that we have one party that would be totally diametrically opposed to doing what the other party in power, Macron isn't really a party, it's just a faction following Macron. The two parties have collapsed. The Socialist Party has collapsed and the Gaullist Party have collapsed on their own corruption and intellectual laziness. And so we have these two factions. That's a much more dangerous system to analyze. I mean, I would argue France is much more dangerous in that way than India right now, which is Mm. not something people would say. So yes, ideally, I'm like you. I'm a good Jeffersonian. I want there to be a vibrant opposition. I said this in the interview. I hope Congress gets its act together, and I do for this reason. But interestingly enough, whoever runs India, be it the BJP after Modi, during Modi and after, or the Congress party during and after Gandhi, I don't think it's going to really change these fundamental drivers. And that is a good sign for investment. That is a good sign for me to sell clients. When the politics matter less, it's a country worth investing in. I worry about developing countries where it's all about one person. Mm -hmm. I I think of Ethiopia and all the hopes we had there. And then, of course, it's all gone horribly wrong because it's dependent on the whim of one human being. That is too random a thing. Whereas in India, I have these larger, deeper, more structural, more enduring issues, all of which go in the same direction. That's a country worth investing in for that reason alone. I I can care Mm -hmm. less. You and I can worry about the politics. But all the other points, as long as they don't mess with the drivers— we're set. And that's a good sign. It really doesn't matter. Germany's that way. I've just written a piece coming out today in Arab News saying a tale of two elections. It really doesn't matter if the Greens or the CDU win because they are going to do the same thing anyway. Uh, and so, it, you know, it's a horse race. I'm, I'm sure people there care. I don't care. It doesn't affect my view of Germany at all. France, exactly the opposite. Whether yeah. Le Pen wins or Macron wins is a fundamental issue for drivers. But India is actually in the very good news camp for this reason too.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I totally get your point, even as kind of a macro or meta point for the political risk industry, because we always talk about it as if it's, you know, it's politics first, as one of the best firms would put it. Um, But at least in my experience, it's been business first and politics insofar as it impacts business in a more nuanced way. Yeah. Um, that's right
1: with you. You're dead right. The politics yeah. is only there. I mean, every once in a while they do something positive. I mean, it is possible Thatcher transformed the UK from a country begging for IMF loans to a great positive power again. And I said that to her. I said, obviously you made mistakes in eleven years, obviously many, but overall you've got to do a beginning and an end shot. And at the beginning, your country was an international mendicant and a joke where the unions could bring down governments. And at the end, you were seen as a confident, strong G7 first world great power again. And that's what you did. You wrought that trajectory change over time. She is an example of that happening. I think Reagan did that in the United States, but it's rare. Very Mm. few leaders are this turnaround. Politics is quite often secondary. And and if it is first, it's for negative reasons. There are exceptions. There's Thatcher, there's Reagan. Uh, You can argue that I think Bill Clinton, to pick a Democrat, you know, did balance the budget, send it like a good Eisenhower Republican, my kind of guy. Uh, and, And did a very good job bolstering on what Reagan had done, not undoing Reaganism, but rather putting a kind of center left spin on that. And much like Blair didn't undo Thatcherism. Um, And and again, that's a good sign of things moving forward. But politics is secondary and often a wrecking power. It's the underlying drivers that matter. You've got to get away from the sturm und drang of the day Mm. and actually look at things. And and that's what political risk has to offer the world. In the Middle East, for instance, where I spent a lot of time analyzing, it is about the politics. And that's that's not a good thing. That's a very bad thing. Uh, Because it's politics as wrecker, as ruiner. It's not always that way. Again, I've named examples of where it's not. But often it is. Really, the drivers are the way we should look at the world. And then secondarily, will they be messed up or will they be encouraged by who's in power? But as you say, it's a more nuanced, secondary issue to these other drivers we're talking
0: about. Mm. And, and sort of in the way that you contrast your opinions about these issues from, you know, whatever the mainstream political risk establishment view is, and we were talking about this earlier, it kind of reminds me of the sort of more general proclivity for groupthink, right? When you're a political risk analyst and you're advising governments and you're meeting top executives and you're advising the big financial institutions, I mean, like you said in your book, it becomes really easy to, to become part of the world that you're meant to analyze. Exactly. And I think it's one of the reasons, I mean, like we were speaking about, the establishment in this industry gets... Lots of the big things in this, you know, in this century wrong. You know, we got Trump wrong, got Brexit wrong, got Afghanistan wrong. Um, so, so in your experience, what's the best way to not do that? What's the best way to avoid the pitfall of immersing yourself in an echo chamber uh, that you know is a detriment to the analysis you produce?
1: I think this is a fundamental question. I'm delighted in the book. I mean, that was very important to me that we say this because it does explain, groupthink. why they're wrong. You become part of the elite you're meant to analyze. And I think we've talked about certain of the bigger firms who've done that, that you become part of the cocktail scene. George Friedman, one of my competitors, got this exactly right, and I love George's quote. I don't do cocktail parties. I live in Austin, Texas. You know, I go to the, Austin's a wonderful city, very cultural city. I go to the European movie, art house movie, there and hang out at the Texas barbecue place. And I go to Washington to analyze the creatures there. I mean, that is right. You, you go there to assess them. And obviously you have favorites and, and, and heroes and villains like we all do. But you, you, it is this secondary thing rather than being emotionally part of it. I can think of one and I won't name him. I'll protect the guilty. But one of my competitors who had been for Brexit most of his life and then came out at the last minute against Brexit. And he said, honestly, it's because I liked hanging out with David Cameron and George or <laughs> You know, Osborne and the Notting Hill people. I like going to parties with them, and i I, I couldn't tell whether to be appalled or impressed by his honesty. You know I, <laughs> uh, I I avoid all that. I live in Milan. I go see all these people, but I have a discernible life of my own. Part of it is the writing. If you write on your own and think on your own and talk to your own people from outside that bubble, um, why we got Brexit right. We called Brexit right. Why? Because I wasn't part of the London cocktail scene, and I was actually writing to dare more boldly out in the countryside in the UK. I was in Gloucestershire. And at my local pub, everybody was for leaving. They weren't Racists. They weren't. And I asked them, why are you for leaving? You know, I sat there with my beer and my fish and chips and said, Why are you leaving? And the dogs there in the fireplace. And and you know, these were well-to-do people. They weren't poor and they were telling, well, we want to take back control. They come, you know, Dom Cummings, my friend. They, they 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 were echoing his line before he came up with it. And I thought, something's going on here. Let's mm-hmm. follow the polling independently. You have to listen to the broadest group of people and not just a bunch of elites who, frankly, are mm-hmm. elite. You know, our elite didn't win World War II. They didn't get us through the Depression. This is historically not a very impressive group of elites who haven't done that well. <laughs> and so I, th- I think you've got to start out, just because you have a title doesn't mean you're any good. I mean, more prime ministers have failed and have succeeded. More presidents have failed and have succeeded. Uh, most of them don't matter very much and disappear into the obscurity they deserve. Some of them are amazing most of them are not. And so you have to think this as you analyze people. If you get caught in the bubble, you lose that objectivity. And so like George, I live in Milan, I love living in Europe, I travel constantly, I meet these people constantly, but they are people I analyze and not people I have beer with on a Friday. That's different. And that that avoids that helps you avoid groupthink and elite capture. And that's what's happened on these issues, is that they've left their very good analytical skills, too often my competitors, at the door, because they've hung out with the Notting Hill set, metaphorically. And that's, that's the road to hell. Mm. You're analyzing these people. You are not part of that. And that's what, in effect businesses around the world are paying me for my fearless objectivity and my call record we publish our call record we got iraq right we got afghanistan right we got you know trump coming up right we got brexit right um, I thought Trump would lose the 2016 election, and I was wrong. I got that wrong. I thought Israel might bomb Iran 20 years ago. I still think they might have. I think my sources were good. I think at the last minute they didn't for a variety of reasons, but that's wrong. But 18 out of the last 20 calls we've made, which we list, we were right about. That's how you should be judged. by the qual- as, as Dr. King said, the content of your character, not the color of your skin. Judge me by my record. Judge me by what I've said. And that's why we write so much model that's why we leave an enduring record that our clients can look to and like baseball it doesn't mean as i wrote in the book it doesn't mean you're right all the time but the best baseball team over 160 games is going to lose 40 games to some very bad teams and things will go wrong but they're mm. going to win 120 and they're going to win the world series and if you look at it as an art and not a science our call record is over 80% and i defy anybody else to say that in the business i think we've done brilliantly well is it perfect no it's never going to be we do our best, but 80%, we're adding huge value for our client, And that's what we hope to do.
0: Yeah. And, and I mean, I I agree with you. I I don't, there's not that many firms are that, you know, open and transparent about their call record. If you get something wrong, it tends to be buried, you know, a couple of years later, you're not really talking about it. At least it's not like published anywhere explicitly because for them, you know, like the value proposition tends to be the network, you know, who do you know and, and how, the person that you know is how can they contribute to basically what you're doing. Yep. Um, and, and it creates a dependence on sort of human intelligence networks that I think can be a real barrier, at least for young people like us trying to enter the industry. Um, because if you don't come from a massive background of, you know, national security, right. Uh, and you don't have all these cool connections. It can be a little bit harder in the current industry, at least to justify yourself in that value proposition. Well,
1: we, we were talking about this before yeah. we heard it. And I, 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 I... Definitely see this from your point of view. And, and, and I think you make I think younger people should make the most of the argument they can make. You're mm-hmm. never going to have the Kissinger rock star rolodex right now, starting out, that you will 30 years from now or even 20 years from now, my my age, when you just get to know people and mm-hmm. you make your way around the circuit. You've had a conversation with these people. But that matters less and less than it should. And you just say, No, I wasn't wrong about Iraq. No, I wasn't wrong about Afghanistan. No, I wasn't wrong about Trump and Brexit. And these fundamental, and the rise of China, the rise of India, these fundamental points. I mean, Mr. Bremer said India had already run the Cold War a few years ago. You don't hear him repeating that, do you? Because he was wrong. So in the end, he does pictures of his animals on TV, and he stopped talking about predictions at all. How convenient for him. Mm. You know, this is not doing the job. Say, I'm good about assessing the world I grew up in you have that advantage some of these older guys with this network still have a cold war mentality going back to the soviet union and that doesn't add value to the world we live in today whereas for younger people starting out this is the only world you've ever known You, the rise of china i remember my interns laughing there was some conference in america 10 years ago about the rise of china and can we stop that and the interns thought this was the funniest thing they'd ever heard in their life and one of them finally said to me I think that horse has left the stable, John. You know, for them, this was ridiculous because China Rising was just part of life. Whereas for the older people, this is a new threat on the horizon. It depends on your perspective. You don't have the Rolodex, but you have a fresh take on what's going Mm. on. And given the colossally awful record, in general, of my competitors, now's the time to make the most of that and say, no, I hope to gain the Rolodex over the next 20, 25 years. But what I am is analytically good. And I have a record of not having made these mistakes and seeing the world as it really is now. I mean, I think you just make the most of the argument in front of you. And that argument's true.
0: Right. And I also think, I mean, the things that matter are changing, not just, you know, our views on them, because you think about like what currently dominates, what sort of businesses think about it's, you know, maybe it's climate or it's yeah. social media, it's disinformation, it's, you know, crypto or blockchain. I mean, those are all things where the demographic balance is certainly leaning towards younger people in, in terms of people who understand and analyze those issues really well. And I think that's, it's that's it's I part think of their
1: out. life, whereas the rest of us are having to frantically learn this as we go. I mean, I can barely yeah. attach Document to an email, and it's a victory. And uh, and no, and as you say, there's a certain affinity. If you've just grown up with computers, it's just part of your life. Whereas in my year, you had actually take classes on Mm -hmm. them to catch up. It's just a different age, a different era, a different generation. You know, Alfred or, or Arthur Schlesinger's notion of generational history matters. If you know where you were during the Kennedy assassination, you're of one generation. If you that means nothing to you, you're of another generation. When I talk about Mr. Gorbachev, this is a real part of my childhood. Is he for real? Is this? Strike are going to work. Uh, to my to my interns, this is like talking about Alexander the Great. You know, it, it's not their internal experience, but their advantages to not having that because you get at some of these newer issues, you get at sustainable development, which is a fundamental investing issue, maybe the biggest coming investing issue. For you guys, this is just part of how to think about the world. For me, this means I have to separate my trash in different ways than I'm used to. And and, and you have an advantage. Blockchain, you have an advantage. Crypto, you have a giant advantage, as we've seen with ransomware, which is a term, you know, I would frantically looking up, all the people working for me know exactly what this is. And mm. so there are certain issues where you have an advantage and you also have an advantage in the structure of the world. We have never had a Cold War like this one. The Sino-American Cold War is different because our economies are interlinked, unlike mm. the Soviet-American Cold War. Yes, it's bipolar in that way, but the linkages and the macro linkages are just fundamentally different. And so you have to, as you say, know that when you when you navigate this. Well, that's very hard to do for the John McCains of the world at the time. You know, that's that's not something they've ever had to do. And so that's why what works in one era doesn't necessarily work structurally. I'm a good structural realist. doesn't necessarily work in another era. And we live in an era with shades of gray and with, yes, it's, there are two superpowers, but as I've written many times, beneath them you have the EU and Japan and India and Russia um, and, and Japan, all of which are great powers and all of which have a huge amount of autonomy. Unlike the first Cold War, in setting their own foreign policy, and so that 's a very different world with these seven or eight powers floating around than we 've ever had to deal with, even if the United States and China are the dominant overarching thing if, if that 's all you look at, you miss these five or six other powers that can chart their own course underneath, and that 's what makes this era so different, so interesting. Where are you guys have an advantage
0: yeah I think, I think. yeah and And another thing that kind of about, you know, from your book and about your work that really intrigued me was... I mean, when we talk about this industry, we talk about it being maybe max 20, 30 years old, you know, to the 1990s at most, right? But like one of your ideas in your book was, you know, the oldest or perhaps even most successful political risk consultant was the Pythia of Delphi, who might, you (laughs) know, we might now incorrectly refer to as the Oracle of Delphi, but that was 2,500 years ago. And I I think in in some ways that highlights the kind of timeless nature of just the profession of understanding the world and helping other people understand the world.
1: I loved beginning the book with that because the more... I, I love classics, and this is part of my British education, my St. Andrew's education, and that everything is in the Greeks, and if you learn about that, you learn how human beings act, good and bad, mm. um, and, and and I think that's true. I think I was lucky to have that classical background, and yes, I mean, the Pythia is demonstrably what we do. They sacrifice sheep and give them gold and then say, explain to me how we're going to beat the Persians. How, how can we possibly beat them? And she, you know, in the end comes up with this idea of a wall of wood, which Themistocles takes to be a navy. The Athenians have just discovered gold at a gold mine. They throw all the gold into building a navy. And Leonides and the Spartans go up to Thermopylae and slow them down. And then the navy wins the Battle of Salamis. And she's worth her fee. That this is demonstrably, and I'm a historian. I believe in a timeless approach to what we do. This is what human beings have always done. Elites want expert advice on how to deal with the world that it's hard to understand, but they have a fundamental competitive advantage if we can give them real-time analysis that works. And I mean, I I was delighted. I actually with my partner, we went to Parnassus, and I went to Mount Parnassus again and saw where the Pythia actually operated. And it was this delightful tour thinking, you know, I'm connected to this the Temple of Apollo. What we do is demonstrably the same. And they've actually found uh, fragments of about 800 decisions the Pythia laid down, and her call rate was over 60%, so well done.
0: (laughs) That's wonderful, coming back to the full circle. No, that's great. And you flesh this out in the book, but but can you also tell me sort of two or three uh, of the top, you know, the most important analytical rules of thumb that you think sort of every political risk analyst should know?
1: Um, basically the way I've divided the book up and to dare more boldly, I'm shamelessly plugging still out there on Amazon guys, buy it. It's done really well. And it is pet sounds. I don't think I can do better. Uh, unfortunately, I don't know if that's like Brian Jones or Brian Wilson. I don't know that I want to end up in my bed then, but, but I don't know that I can do better. Um, one of the, we divided it up into 10 commandments, 10 rules that young, political risk analysts should be aware of in the timeless world as they move forward. If I had to pick two or three, I mean, I'd take, first of all, the kind of, I wrote a chapter on why did the Beatles break up and why did the Rolling Stones stay together to look at structural realism, that you have to understand the basic structure of the world that you live in, and then is it stable? And we kind of were talking about this earlier about China. If China is a revolutionary power, then the system is not stable at the moment until there's a balance to China. If the Quad becomes a balancing act, it's more stable. But that's the overall weather that all investors do, and they need to know whether to take an umbrella or not. And so know the structure of the world you live in and follow it. Which powers are on the up and which are on the down? Is the EU still a great power at all? How great is India going to be a superpower or just a great power is the anglosphere a real thing and should that be included or not these are fundamental questions to understanding how that big picture looks like and so that that would be one thing I'd say Um, I do a chapter which I think is very important once you guys meet policymakers that's the sunk cost fallacy but as we call it the drunken gambler in Vegas casinos make money because dad gambles away the college fund. Uh, But then he keeps gambling because he can't go back to the wife having lost the kids college fund without ever addressing the problem. And the problem is the horrible odds of playing roulette. You're going to lose 85% of the time. That's never addressed. But since I've already made sacrifices, I have to keep playing. That's how Mm. casinos get rich. That's how America doesn't leave Afghanistan, because the logic is always, we've sacrificed even more since last time we brought this up, so let's keep sacrificing more. It is a fundamental intellectual fallacy. It's Vietnam, exact same argument. But we are human beings, and it's it's wrong, it's irrational, but it's also how policymakers think. And how they act. And their careers are on the line. This can't be seen to go wrong. And so they'll keep playing, hoping things change somehow, even without ever underlooking the structural reasons that things will never change. So that's another, I think, think key point to bring up. And then a last one is... You've got to know the difference between people who are chess players and those just going along. And I mentioned Vladimir Putin as an example in my book. He's my favorite kind of Bond villain, that, that Putin has terrible cards and, you know, Russia is, you know, a, gas, a corrupt gas station with nuclear weapons, as I think how I put it in the book. And, um, you know, its economy is smaller than that of the state of Texas. And yet for all this, Putin plays well above his pay grade because he ruthlessly sees what he wants to do and then keeps to that broad strategic plan, which is to keep Russia in the great power spheres of influence status. He doesn't really care what happens at global warming meetings. He's not really that interested in what happens at ASEAN, but he cares about his near abroad, which he needs to keep dominating. And as long as he can dominate or keep in chaos, Belarus, Ukraine, et cetera, he's a great power he has to be reckoned with. And that means Russia and great Russian nationalism continue to exist and he continues to do well. And so I, knowing these chess players, these rare people who have strategic views, as you say, most policy people I meet, it's how to get through the morning. Mrs. Merkel is the great example. Merkel's never had a strategic idea in her life. It's just getting through the day. She's very good at it. She's very good at tactics. But there is no strategy. The strategy is there is no strategy. It's all pragmatism. It's getting through the morning. Putin has a long-term strategic goal, make Russia great again. Everything else is subsumed into this broader goal. It Mm. means he can act quickly and decisively because he has this view. And I contrast Machiavelli who picks Cesare Borgia, the wrong horse to pick in the Renaissance, with Pope Julius II, who actually is a chess player, actually does have a long-term view. And in the end, chess players do very, very well normally. And so that's another thing I'd look at. But uh, thank you for letting me talk up the book.
0: <laughs> no, that's, that's lovely. Well, brilliant. That was a really fascinating conversation. Uh, Dr. John Halsman, thank you so much for joining us.
1: My pleasure, and You guys are fighting the good fight. Keep at it.
0: Now, thank you so much. And to our audience, if you enjoyed this discussion, you're definitely going to love John's book on the political risk industry, which you talked about Dare more boldly. It's available on Amazon. Super readable, super insightful. Uh, and it's written from a perspective that I think very few people have. So, so definitely do check that out. Uh, and to find out more about London Politica, visit our website, londonpolitica.com and follow us on LinkedIn. But that's all for this episode, folks. Stay tuned, stay safe, and I'll see you next week.